Hello everyone, happy new year. This is Strictly Money and I'm Sejal Patel. On today's show, we're going to unravel the secrets to making your financial resolution stick in 2024. Now, if you're like most people, you've probably set some ambitious financial goals, but you know that it's challenging to actually stick to them. Well, the key to success isn't just about willpower. There is actually a method to the madness. So joining me on today's show is Sam Simvaranjan. Sam is an author, a speaker, a behavioral scientist. He has a wealth of knowledge and a diverse background in the financial industry. He's also a dear friend and a sounding board to my ideas. So I know you're going to love hearing what he has to say. Let's dive in. Welcome, Sam, to Strictly Money. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Sejo. Pleasure to be here. So let's talk about resolutions. You know, making it is one thing. Sticking to it is a whole other thing. I was reading a stat that um, something like 10% of people actually stick to their resolutions. What do you think goes wrong? Well, I think I've read the same stat. And to make it even worse, I think the, the stat goes further to say about 43%, so almost half, quit within the first month. So it's not just not following through in the resolution, it's quitting very early. So what happens? A couple of things going on. But I think fundamentally, we try to do too much too soon. And the reality of it is, if we use physical fitness as the realm in which we're making uh, resolutions, we didn't become couch potatoes overnight. Not reasonable to expect that we're suddenly going to run marathons within the next couple of days either. And I think so partly making realistic resolutions with tools and in a way that you're gearing yourself up for follow through is, I think, critical to making resolutions and not being one of those statistics that we just talked about. You know, you, you hit on something, Sam, if we read any type of, you know, habits books out there. One of my favorites is is Atomic Habits by James Clear. But um, Anthony Robbins talks about this as well. And habits really does come down to consistency, doesn't it? That's the, probably the most important thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's consistency, I would say matters way more than the quantity. So doing something small consistently is more importantly than doing something large. Again, going back to the fitness realm, walking for 10 minutes a day and doing that consistently is more important than running five kilometers on day one on New Year's Day. And then, you know, uh, recovering for the next uh, month and deciding not to go back out to, to, to run again. And the reason why that's important is that consistency of doing 10 minute walk a day, which is a relatively easy lift, you can build that into the motivation and the energy to after a month to make that 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And after a year, it becomes a habit that has now taken a life of its own. Do you think, Sam, that people just chew off too much? I know, you know, you, you feel that pressure for New Year's resolutions and to make them. And then you have, say, you know, a physical fitness goal and something else. And, you know, there's before you know it, there's four or five goals. And um, and you and I have talked about this before. We know that willpower is finite, right? You can't do everything at the same time. So I think you hit the nail on the head. I think there's a, co a combination of things. I think there is probably too many goals. I think you're even within those goals, I think there is an attempt to try to do too much. 
the running five kilometers versus um, the 10 minute walk, as I said. And one other challenge, Sejal, I see with many resolutions, whether it's financial or fitness, is that we look at the aspirational element without really putting the key motivational and behavioral foundations in place. And maybe I can expand on that. I think, you know, so we look at the rational case for change. So, of course, for example, saving money, rational sense. But we are asking our current selves to give up our spending habits or that extra latte. And we're making that sacrifice for our future self, for somebody, you know, ourselves in a year from now or two years from now or 10 years from now. And we need to connect those two selves. And this is the emotional case for change. So how will our future self feel when we have made this change, when we've saved better, when we've lost five pounds or 10 pounds? And why is that feeling for that future version of ourselves valuable for the current version of ourselves? And then I think we have to identify the behavioral case for making this change. Like how will we behave differently, for example, when we get our next paycheck. We need to script it out step by step because the reality is that if we can't translate our intention or our resolution into action, then no resolution is going to work. I'm so glad you talked about this, um, Sam, because, you know, this is something that I talk about a lot when I'm, I'm working with people on their financial goals is that, you know, our success has a lot more to do with the behavioral aspect and the emotional aspect more than the rational aspect, right? You can't just appeal to the rational aspect. And partly because we are human beings and we are more emotional human beings than we are rational. I think decisions, and there's lots of research to support this, decisions come from our emotional side of our makeup. Yes, we can rationalize it. We should rationalize it. We should think about why uh, we want to act in a particular way. But without engaging the emotional side of it, of ourselves, we can't ever make the changes that we want. There's a great analogy by the, the author Jonathan Haidt, who talks about the rider and the elephant. And he says the rider is our rational brain, and the elephant is the emotional brain. And unless the rider can coax the elephant along the right path, there's no way that the rider is ever going to be able to control that elephant when the elephant decides it wants to do something else. So the two have to work hand in hand, but we have to recognize the power of our emotional side. Yeah, I think you recommended that book. Is that that Switch, right? By Dan and Chip Heath? It's in Switch, uh, Chip and Dan Heath, but it's also the analogy comes from Jonathan Haidt's uh, book, The Happiness Hypothesis as well. Yeah. I want to go back then, Sam, something you, you talked about that I think our viewers will be and listeners will be interested in. So it's, it's not just enough to sort of write down a goal. You want to actually write down how you're going to feel about it, how you're going to change that behavior. Is that right? How you're going to feel about the behavior and script out the behavioral steps. Like what is your action plan step by step to do it? And I'll add one more anticipate what obstacles you're likely going to meet and how you will handle that obstacle. So in the context of being on a new diet, what will you do? One likely obstacle is that you're going to be invited to a cocktail party or a dinner party or a lunch or a dinner, or you're going out to a restaurant to eat. How are you going to handle that obstacle 
to your diet plans. You know, it might be something like, oh, well, you're not going to look at the dessert section of the menu. It might be that you already are going to order off the menu, say, not look at it, just a salad and, you know, with a a grilled chicken breast on top. I'm, I'm making this up, but I think it's important to not only script out what you will do, but it's to anticipate what the likely obstacles are. Again, this is an emotional component. When you're in that hot state, i.e. in the moment where you have to exercise restraint, it's very tough for all of us to do. If you've scripted out what you will likely do when you're cold and logical and your resolutions and your rationality are full function, etc., it's far more likely that you will behave in that way when your emotional side is hijacking, emotional brain is hijacking your rational brain. Yeah, it makes so much sense, you know, actually visualizing it and, and anticipating those challenges. Sam, I want to go back to something because um, you you talked about physical goals as well. And, you know, and this is a time where people are also making a lot of physical wellness goals. And something that I often think about is whether there's lessons that we can learn and translate from physical goals to financial goals, because, and this is just my personal view, but I find that as hard as physical goals are to achieve, I think they're a little bit easier. And I'll tell you why. I think it's, you know, when you start a diet or you start walking, you can see the transformation pretty quick. You know, all of a sudden your your jeans feel a little bit looser and you go to a gym and there's a social aspect of it. Um, and let's face it, so much of the media messages and things that we see on our social media or, or magazines is related to looking a certain way. Whereas physical goals, I feel like it's just more challenging. It's um, It tends to be more intimidating. To me, feels like a lonelier journey, um, which is why I think, you know, and again, my opinion is, is that it's the one that a lot of people tend to give up on easier. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to what you've said. I think that the physical goals, the fitness goals, they do require a certain degree of consistency and discipline, what we've been talking about. Um, and I think there is an element that maybe the the visible results of that kind of discipline may be evident, you know, call it in a month or two months or three months, if you are consistent on the uh, exercise routine or the, uh, uh, you know, the, the diet routine. Whereas I think savings behavior or paying down debt, for example, or investing better, all types of financial resolutions, I think the results are probably, uh, you know, you probably won't see it visible for many more months after that. I think the challenge in all of these things is still to create what I would say is micro steps or micro milestones that you can grab onto to to measure your progress. And maybe I can give an example. So years ago, my daughter and I used to do Taekwondo together. You know, children doing Taekwondo. And if you're actually progressing, you will get a new belt, a different color belt. But the time between belts can be anywhere from 12 to 18 months, depending on how diligent you've been in, you know, practicing and uh, in your routines. And 18 months for anybody, let alone for a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old, is a very long time to stay disciplined. But what this dojo did, which I found quite intriguing, is they had micro milestones for the kids. 
So they would have stripe on each of the belt. It was just a piece of electrical tape. But every couple of months, they would have a stripe of electrical tape to say that you've made progress. And three stripes would equal the next belt. So it was a micro uh, milestone, a micro visible result that would keep people focused. And what I would encourage people, your listeners to do, is to think of those kind of micro milestones that they can reward themselves with or that they can help stay on the course with, whether it's on the physical fitness or on the financial fitness. So savings might be, as an example, it might take you a year to save the amount that you want to save. But perhaps you can just set a micro goal that says that, look, I'm going, if you say that I'm going to save, I'm going to make it up $10 a week. Maybe after eight weeks of doing that, you can, you know, uh, give yourself a star or treat yourself to a latte or something like that, but it's a micro goal that you can create that is more visible and measurable than that long-term goal that you're looking for. Yeah, I think it's so important, Sam, to celebrate those little wins, especially um, when you, when those goals are, you know, they're they're long-term goals, and and you feel like it's it's a mountain to climb. We're going to take a, a quick break, Sam. We're going to hear from our sponsors, and we'll continue this conversation when we come back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their covered call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO covered call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with your experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Plug your ears, men. Ladies, did you know that I have a free money masterclass? I do. And this is where I teach my trademarked financial freedom framework. So if 2024 is the year you want to conquer your financial goals, go to the show notes, find the masterclass link and sign up. But you got to hurry because spots fill up. I'll see you there. Welcome back. I'm here with behavioral scientist and author Sam Sivarajan. Sam, let's talk about these resolutions. But before we do, I want to kind of look back at 2023, because 2023 was a difficult year for a lot of people. You know, there was a, there was a lot of market uncertainty, interest rates are high, people have been struggling with debt. Are there lessons that you think that we can learn because we always say, you know, hindsight is, is 2020 lessons that we can see in 2023 that we can carry into 2024. Yeah, exactly. I think there are always lessons to learn, but I think 2023 brought some of the chickens home to roost, if, if you will. 
he talked about the unprecedented rise in interest rates that we've had over the course of 2023. I mean, it caught a lot of us by surprise at the speed and the the magnitude of those changes. And I think, you know, we've lived in a low interest rate environment for so long that people were very comfortable taking on higher amounts of debt. So what 2023 was for many, unfortunately, was a rather rude wake-up call, the, the downside of having debt as the interest payments started getting bigger and bigger. So I think that was a lesson that we learned from 2023 or was reinforced in 2023, shall we say, about the downsides of having a higher amounts of debt. I think we saw Again, um, we had an unprecedented period of years where uh, it was a go-go times in the markets. There was meme stocks, there was cryptocurrencies that had taken off, and I think there was this temptation amongst a lot of, for a lot of people, to invest in these kind of alternative or call it for lack of a better word, get rich quick type of investment. And we saw with the implosion of FTX and the bankruptcy and the fraud trials, we saw with the, the write-offs that uh, even sophisticated investors like SoftBank and others had in WeWork. We saw the dangers of that kind of thinking, of believing that the, the, the rules of investing or the rules of gravity no longer apply. And I think those are all important lessons that we can carry forward into 2024. And the last thing I will say is that, look, there's always in the market, and I think perhaps we've really realized that lesson over the last couple of years, that we can't predict with any degree of certainty what's going to happen next. And I think from a financial prudence point of view, this is one reason why there is always a strong uh, encouragement. And I strongly endorse that to have some degree of savings or an emergency fund, you know, to help you tide over when uh, the world doesn't kind of unfold the way you expect it to. I, I think you talked about some things that are so important, Sam, because, you know, I've you and I've been in the industry for a very long time. We've seen a number of corrections and and every time I'm kind of holding my breath, you know, other people are saying, yeah, but it just keeps going up. It keeps going up. And you see the 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 temptation of what I call, you know, easy money. But at some point it ends and we just can't figure out when that's going to be. Because like you said, we can't we can't predict the markets as much as we think we can. We can't do it. 100%. I think I saw a stat recently that a lot of the big banks, you know, what their forecasts were for the S&P 500 at the beginning of last year, and what the S&P 500 was at the end of the, the end of the year, and not one was even within the ballpark. And this is not to denigrate uh, forecasters or to the banks. It, it just makes it the point how difficult it is, you know, to predict something even in our domain, in our space, etc. Well, I'll tell you, I, I never thought that interest rates would be where they are. I expected inflation to not be transitory from what I could see, um, but I didn't expect this. I certainly didn't expect house prices to go uh, where they did. I think that caught a lot of people off guard. And, and again, you and I have been in the markets for a long time. So again, to the point, there's just too many factors you know, to consider. Okay, Sam, let's talk about some of the resolutions. You mentioned one, saving. I think this is probably one that most people think about that they want to save more, they want to cash up more. What is the right way to go about it? The simple and glib answer is the right way to go about it is whatever works for you. But the reality of it is, I think, as we talked about earlier in the episode, is that, um, you know, there's a rational case for saving, there's the emotional case, and there's the behavioral case. 
I think my own view is that I think too many people try to put together a budget and be very, very micro in their budget and thinking about how they want to approach it. So where are they going to spend, you know, how much coffees that they should buy, what have you. And, you know, the earmark says $50 a month, you know, towards saving. Now, if you can do that, good for you. But most people can't. I know that I can't. Most people don't. Yeah, most people don't like budgets. I certainly don't. <laughs> I want to keep track of every coffee that I buy. So what I tell my 20-year-old daughter is this. An automatic debit from your checking account for $10, $20, $50 each month and have it moved into your savings account. Pick whatever amount that you can afford to save. That doesn't matter so much as the consistency of doing it regularly. Because once this money is out of your checking account, then the rest of the money is yours to spend. You don't have to worry about, you know, can I have this coffee today or not? And I think the the benefit of this is it's a very easy discipline to get into because there's not a lot of thinking once you set it up and do it. Uh, but you get used to having less each month to spend. And as a result, a few months later, you might even be able to bump this amount up by $10 a month and so on and so on. And before you know it, you're actually saving a lot bigger amounts of money each month than you'd originally started with. Yeah, pay yourself first, right? This is the concept. And pay yourself first. You know, I, um, as you know, I, I run an online course um, specifically for women, and I've, I, I can see this. You know, I have so many women who I, you know, I, I put them through this. You know, pay yourself first, and they email me and they say, "Wow, I, I never thought that I could save this much." And I said, "Why? Did you feel like you were sacrificing anything, or were you missing anything?" And they say, "No, no, didn't even miss it." Um, so we know it works. We know it works. Well, that's the funny thing, right? Like, as I say, like, and as you've experienced and your clients have experienced, it's not rocket science, but it's a discipline of doing it. And I think the, the, in any of these things, I think in any resolution, whether it's financial or physical, I think the easier that you can make it, the more of the obstacles and potential resistance factors you can remove, the more likely you are to be successful. So keep it simple. Keep it simple. Okay, let's talk about debt. <laughs> a lot of people want to pay off their debt. Is there, in your mind, is there a right way or a wrong way to do it? Well, let, let me put it this way. I think there is what I would say is the orthodox way and perhaps an unorthodox way. So with rising interest rates, I think high cost debt is a real problem for people. And from a pure financial perspective, you and I would both agree that paying off the most expensive debt first makes the most sense to pay the ones with the high interest rate. But for many people, that is a years long journey. And so it's very, very difficult to stay motivated and to stay on track for all that time when it doesn't feel like they're actually making any progress. So people give up. We talked about this. A counterintuitive or unorthodox approach might be to pay off that smallest debt first, even if it's at a low interest rate. Because this approach feeds your motivation and consistency. By paying off that small debt first, wiping it off your ledger, you get motivated that you can actually get rid of that debt anchor that you have. And you're then energized to pay off the next debt and the next debt, etc. It's all about feeding that consistency, that habit that you can do without feeling like you want to give up. And I think that's the key element is to do it in a way that you can do it for the long run. Yeah, again, you're going back to the the rational versus sort of the emotional, the behavioral, right? And, and sometimes they're not in sync. Okay, last one, investing. 
I know a lot of people are, um, are saying, look, I, I'm going to invest more. And I can tell you, Sam, this is a big challenge that I certainly face with women in my program, because women, for some reason, more than men tend to be intimidated a lot more for when it comes to investing. So what's your thoughts on how to approach it? Well, again, simple is better. I think there's a temptation for people to try to do too much. Uh, again, the advice I gave my 20-year-old is this. You don't need to hit a home run and get 15 20% a year. In fact, trying to do so might actually end up meaning that you're losing money and certainly losing sleep in the process. Here again, consistency matters more than quantity. I would argue that for most people, some combination of low-cost diversified ETFs is probably the best investment vehicle. So setting up a monthly investment plan to invest in the selected ETFs that you've chosen without thinking about what did the markets do yesterday, what is it going to do tomorrow, is an easy set it and forget it type of investment strategy. Now, this sounds simple but it's actually a very powerful strategy. Let me give you an illustration. If you'd invested $50 every month in an ETF tracking the S&P 500, for example, for the last 10 years, your $6,000 in total contributions would have almost doubled in value. So that's not bad. No, and you're not doing much. You're not doing much. <laughs> it happened at a time when we had the pandemic market blowout and all of the volatility that we've had over the last few years. This truly is a set it and forget it. And without having to think about the noise about this meme stock or that meme stock or the timing, when should I invest and when should I sell, etc. I think this becomes, again, a consistent habit that you can build and let the power of compounding and the, the, the discipline of consistency work for you. And, you know, I, again, I, I completely agree with you. It's something that I talk about. I said, listen, it should be boring. But for some reason, people push back. It's just counterintuitive that it, it shouldn't be this easy and they overcomplicate it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's for, unfortunately, the most mundane of reasons. I think people want exciting stories to tell. Um, you know, to be able to go into their cocktail party or with their next lunch meeting and say, hey, look at this. I invested in XYZ and, you know, that was a 10 bagger for me. And look, I get it. That's a human element. We all want to tell good stories. I think the bigger question, the fundamental question I would ask people is, you get a choice. Do you want to tell great stories or do you want to live a great life? Um, and in most cases, I think in personal, in personal finance matters for sure. I think one comes at the expense of the other. So good. You know, do you want a good story or do you want a good life? And, and let's face it, Sam, we hear the good stories. We don't hear the bad stories. We don't hear when things go wrong, right? That's what, that's what when people go silent. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Now, before I let you go, um, you don't know this, but I asked my guests uh, three rapid fire questions. So I'm going to ask you the same thing. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What is the best financial advice you've heard or received? Invest in yourself. First, that was in going to school. Early on in my career as an investment banker, I started a new job but couldn't get the senior bankers to take a chance on me and give me the projects. An older friend gave me the advice to knock on senior bankers' doors before I went home and ask, ask them if they needed something from me before I left. By doing that and then delivering, soon working on some of the biggest deals, and that actually paved my career. And led to, I guess, you know, probably the best returns of investments or financial investments I've got, which is, uh, you know, the 
what I earned as a, you know, in my professional career. Uh, it's a great one. In, invest in yourself. It's one that uh, I certainly believe in because we're we're meant to grow as human beings and we're we're meant to learn. Okay, so what is then your worst or the worst financial advice that you've received or heard? I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but it was a stock tip I got in college for a can't lose investment. So what can <laughs> I say? I lost. But thankfully, it was a small amount, and it set me on my course to become an investment professional. So I think I learned a lot from this process and made sure not to make that kind of mistake ever again. Because um, we often do that, right? We listen to to friends and families, and the emotions get the best of us. And um, hey, I've been there. I think most people have, and it's, it's a lesson well learned. One advice that you can give to anyone to help them build financial wellness, what would it be? Look, I think our society celebrates the big wins, the home runs rather than the singles. But what I would advise people is that success or remind people is that success is not binary. If you have a goal to lose 10 pounds and you lose five, it doesn't mean you failed. I think success, the right way to think of success, in my view, is that it is a series of small wins that you can deliver consistently. It's not a once and done effort. So think about what you can do consistently, which is more important than quantity because consistency compounds. I love it. Great way to end the show. Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on. Pleasure to be here, Sejal. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Well, that does it for this show. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you like what you're hearing, please help me spread financial wellness and share this podcast. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise, and stay wealthy.